1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Graves, and along with my partner on crime, Jack Humphrey, we are the co-founders of TheLeveragists.com and Divizio.com, the all-new affiliate network for companies doing good. We have got a fantastic show lined up for you guys today.
0: We have John David Mann, who rose to international prominence in The Go Giver, uh, with The Go Giver, co authored with Bob Berg, which has sold more than half a million copies in two dozen languages and is hailed as one of the most important parables about business and life of our time by Adam Grant, and praised by the likes of Ariana Huffington, Brian Tracy, Seth Godin, and Glenn Beck. The recipe, his current book, is his 24th book. John, welcome and you know, to Leverage you In fact,
1: before you became my co host, Bob Berg was a guest on the show at least twice that I can remember.
2: Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you very much for that illustrious introduction there. Where are you guys? Are you on the West Coast or are you on the East Coast?
1: I'm down in southwest Florida in Fort Myers, and Jack is up Excellent. in uh, Richmond, Indiana, just outside of Indianapolis. How about you?
2: Oh, fantastic. I used to play assistant principal cello for the Fort Wayne Philharmonic. Jack, just oh, wow. so you know, I'm thinking, thinking cello thought in wow. the cornfields of Indiana. Yeah, I I, uh, I. it's one of the things I've done in my checkered past. I have, I have a very... Uh, Long and twisted, sordid tale of my career. Uh, but yeah, I played cello professionally for a while uh, before I and before I, I got involved. And in- I graduated
1: from Notre Dame Law School, was on Notre Dame oh. Law Review, and then lived in Northwest Indiana for a number of years, and I'm still a Hoosier resident. So even though I live in Florida,
2: so this is this show this morning is actually
0: Indiana Reverie. That's what it really is. Okay.
1: There you go. <laughs>
0: Yes, and cello would go so well with our weather today. If you uh, had a somber tune in mind and you were all tuned up, it would be perfect as a backdrop. You know how Indiana gets in the fall. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. You do have one heck of a past. It just seems like you haven't been able to decide what you wanted to be when you've grown up, um, uh, and fill us in a little bit more about that. It was really hard to choose what to tell people about about you because there's just so much, and it's such a varied past. It's kind of cool.
2: You Well, well, thank you. I'm glad that you added that, that, that at the end because you, you really did say it right. I have not decided what I want to be when I grow up, although maybe that's happening now. I don't want to take that too far. Um <laughs> I started out, I mean, none of this, none of this was really intentional or planned. Um, I I started out in life kind of with a career plan. Uh, My dad was a choral conductor of some, of some renown. He was a specialist in Bach and Handel. He was a musicologist and wonderful man and wonderful conductor. Um, And he's his three sons of which I am the middle. I am the bologna and the sandwich. Uh, We were all all musicians, my Older brother plays string bass. He's in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Still, my younger brother plays guitar. I played cello, and I was all set, kind of to to have a career as a concert cellist and composer. And I, I got sidetracked in the area into the area of health and wellness. Um, I don't remember if you mentioned this in the in the bio, but when I was 17, I dropped out of high school to start a high school with some friends, and I got very involved in education. We started our own high school, and it it, it uh, was sort of my first. Taste of the entrepreneurial life, although I didn't think of it as that at the time. I wouldn't have used that word, but that's really what it was. It was, you know, an entrepreneur is somebody who makes it up, uh, who makes up a story and believes it, and acts <laughs> on it, and then it becomes true. That's really what an entrepreneur is. And, and so, uh, out of the high school experience, I got very involved in uh, holistic health and wellness and nutrition, and I spent over a decade in that field, and then got from there into business and uh, direct selling and sales and, and um, entrepreneurship in the, in the classic sense and uh, ended up doing a lot of editing and writing in the area of leadership and uh, success in organization and organization and so forth. And that kind of bumped me into, you know, everywhere I went, I always seemed to be the guy that was editing the newsletter. There, was, there were always bits of pieces <laughs> of writing that needed to be made better. Um, you know in every group there's always one who cleans up the dishes when the party's done um, there's yeah. always one who <laughs> who looks out for, who looks out for the animal there's always one who makes sure that we lock the door. I was the guy who always made sure that the that the newsletter was was in good shape so uh editing I, I think uh professional editing is is one of the very best uh, s- sort of platforms. A preparation an author or a writer can have I, I spent years editing other people's stuff and then eventually edged into co-writing Bob Berg yeah you mentioned Bob and and the the book Bob and I wrote together first was was kind of my uh my my unintentional foray into the world of books and that's where I that's where I've ended up
0: that's where I am today writing books yeah, plus if I had a dollar for everybody who started – every guest that we've had who started their own high school, I'd have exactly a dollar. That's unusual uh, <laughs> right there. <laughs> That's here awesome. go. Well, so you're known now – nowadays you're known for writing about business and, you know, from the Go-Giver books. And uh, now you have a book about cooking. What's the deal? How is that even – I mean, this just goes along with your MO, though, doesn't it? Let's have a book about cooking now. So tell us yeah, about it, that. Yeah, it, really,
2: it really. does. It does. You know, it's funny. I was I was working on a book on leadership with um with Betsy Myers, who was uh everybody remembers Dee Dee Myers, who was President Clinton's press secretary for for a term, and Betsy is her sister. Betsy was also in the Clinton White House, and then she was. She worked as the COO for Obama's uh, campaign first term. And I, I mentioned all this only because I was working on a book with Betsy on leadership. And this is right you know, down my, my, my alley. You see business, leadership, organization, that kind of thing. I've written with liberal authors and conservative authors, so you don't have to associate me with just one stripe. But I was working, I was in a meeting with her on this book, and I got a call from my agent, my literary agent, who said, I got this book, and, and it's, not the kind of thing you do, and you probably, you know, you're not going to want to do this, but I, I need a writer. Uh, there's a, a Navy SEAL sniper sitting in my office.
1: <laughs>
2: and she sent me uh, a page that this guy had written about a, a, his memoir he wanted to write, a book about his experience as a Navy SEAL sniper and then as the guy who, who went on to train a generation of, of snipers. And I read the page, and I, I called her back and said, I don't wanna do this. I've gotta do this. Um and I believe it or not, I'm answering your question, Jack. I really am. I'm getting gonna get to the cooking, but um <laughs> I, I I did that book with Brandon Webb, the Navy SEAL Sniper that I was talking about. We wrote his memoir, The Red Circle. It was a New York Times bestseller, we had a blast doing it. It was just when, when SEALs were, you know, kind of coming into it was after the Captain Phillips thing had happened. Um, and and you know soon after that the uh, bin laden thing happened is suddenly everybody was talking about seals and i guess we caught that wave in any case we've written i guess five books now together and the the fascinating thing for me about these books with brandon uh, is First off, he's an amazing entrepreneur, and so we actually clicked on that level. But I have no military background. I, I have no military history. So writing a military memoir, um, earlier this year I put out a book. It was a, uh, uh, sort of a memoir and an action story about a uh, real-life story of following the, the path of four special operations snipers, um, Army Ranger, a Marine sniper, a Canadian infantry sniper, and a Navy SEAL. And I know it sounds like the first line of a joke. Um, They walked into a bar. (laughs) And this is a massive military memoir with, you know, tons of detail, none of which I know anything about. So so in order to be able to write that stuff, I I really had to ask a lot of questions and learn it. And I felt like it was an advantage because there's no way I was going to talk over the reader's heads. There's no way I was going to just make assumptions and say things and, and, and leave the reader behind because I knew less than any reader of, of books like this. So it, it, I had to be able to explain it so that I got it, and therefore anybody who reads those books is going to get it. That was kind of like this book you're talking about now. Um, I was approached years ago when The Go Giver first came out. I uh, got a, a message from this guy who said, you don't know me, but I'm executive chef, at a country club in Houston, Texas, and I'm using your book, The Go-Giver, with my team. And right there, I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, because The Go-Giver yeah. is, is really is – a, is a book about putting other people first and a book about how if you take your focus off yourself and put it on others, that's not only a, a sort of a nice philosophical, you know, noble and satisfying way to behave as a human – it's also smart. It's also pragmatic. It, it, it's it's a practical way to, to live your life in, in business terms, because if you're known as the kind of person who really goes out of his way to look look after others, uh, people are going to take care of you. You're going to it's going to your reputation is going to precede you, and that'll only serve to, you know, to serve you well. Well, so here's this guy who is executive chef of this gigantic operation. He's using the go giver in his, in his place. And I, uh he invited me out to give a talk, which I did. And then he told me about this idea he had for a story about this 14 year old boy who's lost his dad and who's really struggling with life and, uh, and angry at the world. And his grades are plummeting. He's getting in fights and he's in a bad place. And he ends up having to go to work for this crusty old diner chef who, you know, hardly say, has, says a word. And, uh, at that point, it becomes like Karate Kid meets Master Chef. <laughs> it's like the Mr. Miyagi <laughs> of the kitchen. And I'm like, oh, oh, I love that idea. Um, personal growth, leadership, and life lessons in the kitchen. God, fantastic. So I, I was the same as I was with the sniper thing. I said, I, I've got to write that book. I, I've got to be the author who writes that book. Um, and, so, and so we did. I teamed up with him, Chef Charles Carroll, who is this amazing, award-winning international chef. Um, and I te- teamed up with him, and, and we wrote this book. And it's exactly the story he envisioned. It's the 14-year-old boy, his name is Owen, who is in a bad way and, and goes to work in this little diner, sh- diner kitchen for this uh, inscrutable chef, John Kellaway, and, and, um, and learns a whole lot about life and, and, and loss and love and, and greatness in the process. Long paragraph to answer and also, a very
0: short question.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and also, you're probably an amazing cook now, right? Well, you know, I, I shared
2: this with my readers. I had a lot of people – we had almost 200 people read the book before we published it. We, we got a big circle of, of early readers Um, And a lot of them came back and said, you know, I I cried when I read this book. I wasn't expecting that. And I was was laughing because I was expecting that. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. I made you cry. That was (laughs) the goal. But I cried when I was writing it. So, you know, you definitely need to cry while you're reading it. But a lot came back and said, you know, after reading it, I I feel more confident in the kitchen. I don't know if it's that I know more or I just feel better about it. But – there is. There's a lot of cooking in the book. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of cooking. Um, there's a lot of of real cooking. That is to say, my my co-author is a, is, a, is a serious career chef, and so there's a lot of kitchen technique. By which I don't mean razzle dazzle with the knife, the kind of thing that you know you do to impress people on television. But a lot of real how you operate in the kitchen, how you how you take care of foods to bring out their best flavors, how you work with a knife and with your utensils, and there's a lot of that instructional. Um, and it's just like you know, it's like in Karate Kid. You don't you don't want it to feel like you're reading a manual. It's not supposed to be boring, and it's not boring. Um, but but in the course of the book, there's a lot of there's a lot of cooking and a lot of food, and so yeah, I mean, uh, I, I was going back and forth from my desk to my kitchen constantly while writing the book. And a lot of what you see the boy learning, what you're really seeing is me learning that stuff while I was writing the book. <laughs> so how to, how to peel an onion or how to peel a carrot, how to cut an onion so it won't make you cry, or at least not as much um, how to peel chipolini or garlic, <laughs> how, how to, you know, not overcook the, the piece of salmon or how to, you know, make a salad that will blow your guests' minds. How to? A lot of these things. This is all. Um, this is all grist for the mill for the writing process and and for the reading process.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we've got personal development, personal growth, things like that. We've got cooking. We've got recipes. We've got a chef. How, how do you explain what the story is about? Because it's really a story, right? It's not just. A, you know, it's yeah. not in the self-help section where everybody just gives you a list of things you should do, make your bed in the morning, and junk like that. This is a story.
2: Right, 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 right. And, and you know, if, if uh, any of your listeners have read The Go-Giver, and, and you may not have, but, you know, when I wrote The Go-Giver with Bob Berg, it, it's, you know, it, like the recipe, this new book, they're both parables. And a parable, I guess the definition of a parable, as I understand it, it's a simple story that's designed to, to teach something. It's a teaching story. Uh, but here's the thing for me about teaching stories is that if they're, um, if they're thinly disguised lectures, <laughs> if they're really just like a PowerPoint mm-hmm. with, with some character names glued on top. So like, instead of saying, here's what you do, say, Jim walked in the, into the room and said, Hey, Sally, here's what you do. And now you get the lesson. Like, oh, uh, help me. You know, it's, it's not only is yeah. it boring, but it's worse than that because you feel like you're being talked down to. And in fact, parables, there's a million parables out there, and they, they sometimes have kind of a bad name in some business circles, simply be, exactly because of that. Um, for me... You know, when I, when I wrote The Go-Giver, I had just come out of an uh, uh, intensive year of screenwriting uh, study because that was what I was planning to be, was a screenwriter. And for me, uh, the, the, greatest, the best teaching happens through stories, and the best stories happen through emotion. Um, you know, you, you may want to teach an idea or a thought or a principle, but what you communicate, how you reach people is through feeling, is through ex- human experience, in a, in a story, for a story to be something that people want to read, it, you've got to experience someone's struggle, their, their pain, their, their yearning, their triumph. And the triumph is meaningful if there isn't some, some struggle to get there. For me, here's what it comes down to. When I write a story like The Recipe, I'll start out with some ideas that I know we want to, I think we want to communicate. Because Charles gives a lot of, Chef Charles gives talks about
0: ingredients of greatness,
1: and about
0: enthusiasm, his learned, his life as a joke and I, I do the same thing. Uh, we get talk about, you know, there's five principles, or seven principles, or three principles, of this or that. But we're sticking a story. It started out with this 14-year-old kid, and this kind of inscrutable old chef, and when I do it, I go, what? Who is this kid? It's like getting to know someone that just
2: sat down in the living room. Um, who is this old chef? What makes them tick. What, what's important to them? You know, who do they love? Who do they miss? Who do they want to become? Who are they afraid of? What are they afraid of? And so that's, yeah, it's a story. And it's got to be first and foremost, a story. And you, you if you feel like you're being lectured to, then I have failed. If you feel like you really want to know what happens on this page because you care about this kid, then I've succeeded. And the story is a story about this boy who's who just lost his dad? So, the subtitle of the book is A Story of Loss, Love, and the Ingredients of Greatness. Um, the Ingredients of Greatness might be the purpose of the book, but the, the substance of the book is, is the loss and the love. It's, it's, you know, most of us didn't lose our fathers at age 14, but we've all experienced some kind of loss whether, you know, a, a, you know, on the scale of tragedy, like someone's died, or, you know, you had a best friend who betrayed you. You had a friend who moved away, you never saw them. Again. Um, you really wanted to be in this team and you got kicked out. Whatever it was, we've all experienced some kind of, of pain that's left at scars and that we've struggled to deal with. And that's really what the, what the book is about. It's about how this, how this poor kid deals with his, his life, and especially how this sort of distant old man reach out and and help this kid how do, how does he do that how does he how does he serve as the mentor who helps this boy step
0: into his life that's really cool i you know i can't shake something i'm going to have to travel back a little bit and talk to you about this if you ever adapt your story for this big screen I really think with the, the sniper thing that if you went undercover in the Afghani Philharmonic as a cellist, it would really help to pepper up the story with some, some of that storytelling uh, mo- mojo that you're talking about. <laughs> does that, does that get have a Philharmonic? Because that would be just perfect for the movie of your life. Yeah, uh, you
2: know, I, I I actually don't know if there's like a <laughs> four orchestra in in Kabul or uh, uh, Bagram or <laughs> I have to go check that out. I will I will say that Chef Charles, my um, I talk about confluence of of, of topics. My co-author, Chef Charles, in uh, he has no military background either. But in 2011 and then again in 2013, he raised hundreds of thousands of dollars and took a team of celebrities and entertainers and chefs and, and assistants and went over to Afghanistan and cooked um, meals and put on shows for 5,000 U.S. troops. Uh, just this sort of massive wow pro- project. Yeah, he ended up getting invited to the White House and to a reception and he got five U.S. presidents to all, all uh, record personal video messages for the troops for him to carry over. I mean, this is a guy who is just so entrepreneurial. It's it's amazing to me that uh, uh, you know that that he, that he does what he does. But that's that's who he is. So yeah, there's an, there's an Afghan. Well, I'm that, glad I you know, I'm glad I brought sport. that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You never know who's going to do what. That almost, Meanwhile, my that was na- almost like it was intended. <laughs> I know you're you're uh, you're a psychic. You're psychic. Meanwhile, my my <laughs> uh, my na- your sniper friend Brandon. Has become a uh, CEO of a media company in New York. He's he's now a bona fide entrepreneur. Um, he's you know fully transitioned from military life to to civilian life to the business world, and that's that's the stuff he and I are writing about. So all these it's funny all these strangely disparate and different worlds: professional cooking, the military, special operations, entrepreneurism the way that they they they're just a lot more fluid than you'd think the same principles the same ideas just travel back
0: and forth mm-hmm. through through any top, any area well and it's kind of weird because it's happening right here on the show because i was also thinking i had to get that old note out of the way so i could get to this newer note that i was thinking while you were while you were uh, describing the book and that is if if people missed the intro and who you were and just popped in when you were talking about telling a story and how to tell a good story and how to play on the emotions and everything else, you could have been doing a a talk at a uh, conference um, on copywriting and, and I'll have you know (laughs) that you actually could do really well there too. If you needed another career to add to your list, because that, that's exactly what the really great copywriters do. They figured out, too, that you can't come off in a in a flat way, certainly not in a lecturing tone or anything like that, if you want to sell anything or tell a story about um, uh, something, especially a client's product or your own product as a business owner, and uh, get people to engage with it at all, unless you have those um, sensibilities about what you do. It's just really weird. Yeah. There's another confluence thing there. And I wanted to um, – oh, there was something here that I wanted to pick up on. Oh, and this really kind of bothered me because I was reading through some of the things. Um, in the book, the chef character says, everything you cook reveals everything you are. And I really would love to have you explain that a little bit more and allay my fears because if you've seen my cooking, I don't want that to be everything that I am. I really don't want that to truly, literally represent who I am. Please allay my fears.
2: <laughs> I am I, going to with 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 uh with near papal authority I'm going to issue you a waiver. <laughs> Get me off the hook here. But but yeah it, it's you know it's 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 kind of like as he says he later on quotes that that lovely Buddhist expression how you do anything is how you do everything. Um you know it brings me back to this the, there's a very popular book out right now uh based on on uh, by Admiral McRaven, um, Bill McRaven, based on his on a commencement speech he gave. McRaven was the was the captain who signed my friend Brandon's sniper certificate when he graduated from sniper school. So years later, he became uh, Admiral McRaven, and he wrote this magnificent book uh, about that's about the ten things you can do if you want to change the world. And he said, the thing number one is make your bed in the morning, and he talks about how the most insignificant actions, seemingly insignificant actions in your life are so important because how you do anything is how you do everything. Or to, to put it more, maybe more, uh, more practically, how you do little things is how you end up doing big things. You know, the attention to detail that the ship talks about is so crucial. It's true in writing. It's true in the military it's true in cooking. It's certainly true in finance. It's certainly true in sales and, and commerce. Um, you know, your your impression of a business is so often formed by how the employee answers the phone, the first the first 30 seconds on the phone, or how they answer the door, or how the server greets you at the table, or how the napkin is, on the, how the table looks, or even how the restroom looks. You know, you go to a, a restaurant and there's all this food and all these cooks and all this serving and all these tables and all these menus and and you've got to wash your hands and you and it's like you come back and say, "My God, that's the cleanest restaurant I've ever seen." You almost don't even need to know what the, what's on the menu because you've already decided that this restaurant is a cut above because they've paid attention to that detail, and so that's kind of what the chef is saying there he's saying that when you cook in the same way as that when you greet a customer, when you make your pet, when you do something, even like an overeasy egg, it communicates so much about your state of mind. It communicates so much about your level of attention, about where your mind is at, about how you are. So he says, if, you cook, if you're feeling angry, you're gonna cook angry. If you're, if you're feeling hurried, you're going to cook her eat. Um, and, 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 you know, people are living, breathing, tuning forks. They're resonating constantly. Whether or not it's, this is my belief, whether or not it's at the level of awareness, people contrary to popular belief are not stupid. <laughs> they, they pick up yeah. uh, on, on where we are. So uh, often without even a, even a spoken word, you, you, you bump into someone you kind of know what their mental state is I think that's what he's
0: driving at so yeah take your cooking off the hook it's good <laughs>
1: <laughs> well
0: I don't know I think I might have perfected some of the anger recipes uh, ah, i I, did, I didn't know that was a taste or a mouthfeel until I uh, cooked angry one time and I'm like yes this tastes like anger so i I don't know yeah I, there's a lot to that there really is you know I, things, I learned you know are,
2: I, I learned from my wife how to, before, long before this book, I learned from my wife why I was constantly ruining eggs because the flame was too high. I mean, it, 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 it's such a simple thing, but it took me years to finally get. She's like, you know, if you cook that over easy egg on a medium heat, then you're not, you're not going to turn the edges of it into rubber. And that whole scene that happens in the book where Owen kind of ruins an egg, um, that didn't come from Chef Charles. That came from me because I, I know that experience of denaturing, such a simple thing as a as – a, uh, uh, you know, people joke and say, I can't even boil water without burning it. It's almost <laughs> not a joke. It's almost not a joke. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm not an angry person, but I was being a rushed person. I was being an impatient person, and I was I was ruining egg after egg after egg, not because I'm a person of ruination, but because I was not giving us any care. I was just trying to hurry up. I wanted to get done now.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've made lots of those rubber eggs. Uh, I yep. try to get people convinced that it's a style, like it's French or something, And that, you know, it's a big deal. One time uh, I worked in a country club, uh, you know, between years in college. And uh, the chef had to leave and uh, left us in charge. And it was, you know, for snickety uh, uppity country club people (laughs) who were coming in. And it was a country western theme. And... Uh, nobody here, it's Indiana, but nobody here understands what country. I had come back from the West, and I had seen <laughs> what people in the West are really like. And this was, so they're all dressed in their weird cowboy hats or whatever they had in their closet that <laughs> sort of felt like their version of Bonanza. And it was really, really weird. But we uh, we had cornbread, tons and tons of cornbread. It was steamed. It had ham and beans, and there was a brisket, and there was, you know, we had to have cornbread. And we were missing a chef who had that magic touch. And I know you know this thing where a chef just moves around a kitchen in a way yeah. that is like an octopus with eight arms. He gets so much more done or she They just have an intuitive feel for the space and what's getting ready to burn if you don't go over here. And we didn't have that. We were just, you know, I was a glorified mm-hmm. dishwasher. And I had to go in and do some things. In the, and, and this is where I learned a lot about cooking myself. Uh, it, 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 you know, when they were short, I had to do things I was really uncomfortable and not trained to do. So I'm doing some of that, chopping some things or whatever. And we start to smell something, and the uh, the the sous chef or the the, the guy we, that left in charge, Danny, uh, was screaming uh, a little bit in the kitchen. And everybody's coming in, and we're at the last moment, and. He opens the oven, and the cornbread was getting burnt. It had been in too long, and pans of it, just trays of it. So, And this is it. There's no making anymore. The people are coming in, and they're ready to get somebody fired at all times. We had a running joke in the kitchen that, you know, one of the things that rich people really love to do is just get somebody fired. They have the power to do it. And if I'm, you know, anything is off, well, burnt cornbread is off. But Danny is sweating. He's literally sweating. His hat is sweating through he had one of those paper chef hat things, and and, uh, and he's out there. He's like, we just got to go. And he's a gay guy, and he's just got this really flamboyant, and I just love how the whole thing. And so he's down there carving <laughs> the uh, roast beef at the end of the table, and we had. he said, just cut it up and put it out there. And he did, and we did. And it was really brown on the bottom. And I heard, and so we're all doing things around the table. We're all looking around, and the people are coming, and they're just waiting for something to be off. And they're all, you know, they don't want to be in Richmond, Indiana, at a country club. They heard there are better country clubs in much, you know, fancier cities. And they know they're not really rich people. Really rich people don't live here. But so they're mad, and and they're just waiting. And we're all waiting to get fired and, and have everything go to crap. And I heard Danny down at the end, they said, what's this cornbread? And he said, well, that's country cornbread. That's country and western cornbread. That's a special <laughs> recipe from out west. And he got a twang. I don't know where the twang came from, but that's how he – and they, I watched people pick up two pieces. They, they know what burnt cornbread looks like. Everybody knows that, but he made it special by telling a story about it and saying it fit with the theme of why we're all here, and that's how Cowboys made it. He said. And I just was like, oh, my God, you're brilliant. And people who had put down the tongs picked the tongs up again and put another piece on their tray because they knew now it was special for them and they were being treated special. And we all kept our jobs.
1: (laughs) This is
2: like Tom Sawyer and a whitewashing fence. Oh, my God, that's great. (laughs) This is too
0: great. (laughs) Anyway, anytime you need, I can make you some nice country western cornbread, if you like, cowboy cornbread.
2: Oh, I not, not only that, but also you can uh, definitely write write the book about it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is fantastic. I love it. Uh, and you know what? Their lives are so better for it because they went home with a great story. They went home feeling better about their lives because they had participated. They had partaken yeah. of the of the real
0: stuff, the good stuff. Yeah, I bet. Oh, god, that would be funny to follow up with just a little fake uh, story about how they went home and bragged about that to people. <laughs> that would be perfect. There might be a book. <laughs> you might get me to jump careers and just start writing about oh, yeah. stuff like this. Uh, so one of the things so that Chef talks about in a book as as well is uh, to pay attention to the little things. When you do, the big things tend to take care of themselves. And yes. it's kind of weird because that is absolutely – you can feel that in your gut that that's true. But I've also yeah. said to people – because we have a business-oriented audience, and I've also said – that if you you know, leverage and go as high as you can in your business and talk to the biggest people or do the biggest things, the little things tend to fill themselves in at the bottom. And I also feel that on a gut level. But what did Chef mean by pay attention to the little things when you do the big things tend to take care of themselves? You know,
2: I'll give an example in writing. And, and this, I've, as you said at the, at the beginning, of, I've written like two dozen books now. So I, I, I know... Intellectually, I know. Logically, I know that I know how to do this, I, or I know that I can do this. But I will tell you, every time I sit down to start a new book, there, there, you know, there's a phase where I'm gathering, I'm researching, I'm like learning who Chef Charles is or who Brandon Webb is or whatever, kind of getting, getting ready right, to write. And then there comes the phase two, where, which is the actual writing, sitting down with the blank page or the blank screen and saying, okay, like, what is this book? I, 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 what's what's on page one? How does it start? What what is what how does this how does this book go? And when I actually have to start writing it, there's a panic inside me where I feel like I I just can't do this. Oh my god, I just don't don't know how it works. I don't know how it how it how it should flow. I don't know where it starts. I just and I, I'll hear myself say it out loud. I don't I can't do this. I can't write this book. And what I've learned is, sorry for the B thing. It's call waiting. What I've learned is. I can't. I can't write this book. I can write a sentence. I can write a paragraph. And it's like like that. All I can do is, you know, it's like Hemingway would say, write one true sentence. That's what you can do. And there comes a point where I have to just let go and not worry about the structure of the whole book, the theme of the whole book, the the gist of the whole book, and just write a sentence. It's kind of like I have to Do what I have to do at 9 o'clock and not worry about the rest of the day. Um, I think what you said is also true. You know, it's keeping your eye on the big picture, also the details fill in. I think they're both true. But for me, it's like this it's the little things that matter, they'll determine the big results. At the same time, I think you have to ask the big questions first because Hmm. those questions will tell you what are the little things you need to do. Um, You know, I will, I will start out with, in in the case of writing a story or writing a book, I will ask, what's this book about? Who is this person? You know, what's, what's the, what are the, where's this book going? I don't mean the ending, because often the ending is a surprise to me as much as as it is to the reader. But I mean, in the big picture, what's the point of this book? Why are we writing it? Um, Eh, it's the same thing with a business. You know, why am I in business? What is this business for? But, yeah, operationally speaking, I really think that sometimes you just have to focus on the integrity of the detail and that when you do, um, you know, things things tend to fall into place.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I always wanted to be a, a multi-book author, and it doesn't help to hear you say, that the same stuff sets in on you even after 24 books (laughs) at at the beginning of each book. It's better now. Okay. Yeah. You know it's coming at least. It's not that.
2: I used to really not know. I mean, I used to really go, oh, my God, I don't think I can do this. Now I hear myself say that, but I also, you know, I say, okay, John, I'll take myself by the hand and say, John, you know how this works, and I will actually change my own languaging. I taught myself years ago to speak my, my internal dialogue out loud so I can hear how ridiculous it is. Um, we tend to not realize how ridiculous the things we say to ourselves are because we don't hear them when they're just inside our heads. But I've learned to say it out loud, so I'll actually say it out loud. I'll say, John, you idiot. I'll say, John, you have no idea what you're doing. You are totally, totally, you know, up shit's Creek here, or you're up the river, or whatever. I'll say that to myself, and and then I'll hear it and say, well, that's not very productive. (laughs) So I will take myself by the hand and say, okay, here's here's the situation. This is an amazing challenge. Instead of saying this book is impossible, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'll say, okay, this is an incredible challenge. This book is going to be fantastic. I know this book already exists. The story is already out there sitting in the ether, just waiting for me to pull it in. It's going to be fantastic. let's take a look at the first sentence. I mean, I actually have ha, have learned how to wrangle myself, how to talk to myself so that I can turn my my uh, sort of my fears and intimidation about the process into something aspirational, and I can get my butt in the chair and actually start working on the first sentence. Because once I'm in the
0: first sentence and I'm playing with it, I'm having a good time. One of the perks of having a podcast and having all these kinds of experts and everywhere from all industries and and authors like you is I get free consulting. And I'm going to to take advantage of that right now. But I think it's going to help our listeners, many of whom uh, fancy themselves having a book at some point um, and writing. And they know they want to do it. They know they've got a book in them. And uh, one of the things that I'm struggling with now with something that I'm working on and have been – I don't want to say working on because that means that I like come down here in my office and sit and work on it, but thinking about it a lot more than that. And what Mm. do you do when you sit down and you, you're all over the place? Like one of your 24 books, you probably had put a lot of thought into or you've been thinking maybe for over the course of a couple of years about, man, I really would like to write that. Here's another idea that through, you know, came through my head. And uh, how do you deal with, with then sitting down with something that you, were, you felt prepared to, more prepared, because you had more time to think about it. And now all those thoughts about different chapters, different parts of the story, all of those things are jumbled around in your head. And that makes it kind of hard for me to sit down and write that sentence, write that first mm. sentence, wherever that might be yeah. in the story. How do you deal with that?
2: Wow, that's actually a great question for me um, because it really strikes right to the heart of, of the, the thorny heart of the process. Uh, so, for me, the the whole challenge of writing is colored by this thing of structure and flow. Um, for me, structure and flow. I'm just happen to use those words at the moment. I've never called it that before, but that's kind of what it is. They're two. Again for me I may be different for other writers for me they're two totally different mental states um and it, I don't know if they're right brain and left brain or there's something else but whatever they are there's the you know Stephen King says that he writes his first draft with the door closed and the second draft with the door open by which he means the first draft he doesn't show anybody um because it's so fragile this this young thing without a shell yeah um and it's only in the second draft where he'll actually get comments from people he trusts. For me, it's like uh, that first draft is, is not only will I not show it to anybody else, but I try not to even show it to myself. That is to say, I turn off my critical faculty. Um, and and there's, there's the activity of just generating stuff, generating content for me, which is what I'm calling flow. And then there's the activity of kind of sorting through and organizing what I've got or organizing what I'm thinking and trying to you know, look for the structure. And, and I'll tell you, Jack, I've even got two different spots in my house. I have a, uh, you know, my desk with my laptop, which is where I do most of my normal work. And it's very structured there. And I've, but I can't start a chapter. Or even if I'm writing a blog post, you know, four or five hundred words, I, I, I don't usually start it at my desk. When I'm going to start something – uh uh and and you know this might be the this might not be literally page one. It might be you know the second half of a chapter where there's been a break, and I've got to start something new anyway, when I'm going to generate something fresh, I'll go off and sit in my my armchair on the other side of my office with a, a blank pad of paper. I cannot do this with a laptop or a computer. Um, blank pad, a pen, a cup of hot tea, and usually headphones on to block out noise. And just get myself in almost a meditative state. I mean, just a place of, okay, let's see what's, let's see what's, let's try tuning the radio knob and see what's playing out there in the ether. Um, and I, I, I studiously avoid letting myself have any structural thoughts or any critical commentary. And I'll. I'll it may take me half an hour to start getting an idea or, or 10 minutes or whatever time it takes. I'll start working on that pad. I might fill up a page or a page and a half maximum. I never generate much material in that place. I'll generate a little bit and uh, uh, sort of seed material or ideas or snippets of dialogue and they may be from page one. They may be from... First thing I wrote in The Go-Giver was three quarters of the way through the book. Um, Some of the first stuff that we scribbled in the recipe was, was way way into the book. So this may not even be page one. It's just like I look for a handhold wherever I can sort of glom on and grab on and get a feeling for what's happening in this in this story or in this book or in this blog post. Um and by the way, blog post, it you know it may not be a story. This may be a post about an idea. It may be totally non nonfiction, but it's still the same thing. I'm looking for a place to grab on where I, I feel like I've got something to say or some something to, to write. Then I'll take that pad of paper over to my desk and sit down and now I'm like another person. Now I'm like my editor and I'll say, okay, what do we got here? Ah, oh, all this is crap. I'll throw this, this stuff all out. This is no good. This is interesting. I could develop this. This can go somewhere. And, and then I'll start sorting through and looking for structure and, and, Sometimes, for me, when I get stuck it's 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 I'm in the I have to just you know shift from one mode to the other or back again.
0: but this is where like how many how many times can you look back over all of your books or or uh, just one or two of them, whatever, that you can trace the source of all the way out to Amazon when you're getting feedback from a reader who was really touched, moved, affected by something that you can picture, the idea for that came from that pad of paper sitting in that chair in that creative space. I mean, You could, like trace that all the way back to that origin, couldn't you? And that's, that's really important that you do it that way because I think a lot of people think, well, I'm going to write now, so here I am being a writer. I'm going to remember everything I've seen in movies about writers and everything I've read about writers and all of that, and I'm just going to sit down and begin to type. And you just told, yeah. I think, the origin story for the stuff that people are going to remember and remark on and and give feedback on and, and yeah. really where that comes from, right? Yeah. yeah, That's, that's so interesting you said that because
2: I, it, it surprises me. Sometimes I'll sit down that, in that armchair and I'm at the beginning of writing a book and I'll, I'll end up, you know, after 90 minutes or two hours, I will have scribbled a page or a page and a half and – my handwriting is so bad that nobody can read it, not even me sometimes. And I'll start transcribing these off into my computer, and I'll put them in a file, and I'll, and I'll end up writing a book. It's like, I don't know, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 words long. And the thing that that reader on Amazon comments on that really moved them, son of a gun, was this little scribble of dialogue I put on that pad of paper on day one. <laughs> you know, 50,000 yeah. words to get it into a book, but it's that thing. It's that little spark is what makes it into the book that actually is the sparkle in its eye. So, yeah, it's a a fun thing to
0: trace it back like that. Well, if anybody out there feels like me at any given point, and that's where I am, I feel like I have this thing. And it was the first thing I thought about that would be the crux of this book, this story. I'm really worried about the rest of the story because it's just that... (laughs) Half a page, page, but it, but I know it to be at least one of the more crucial pieces of magic that would be in this book if it turned into magic, and uh, mm. and and so everybody listening who's ever been at that stage might be at that stage. There's hope. You can write 24 books yeah. and have a crazy career uh, and learning all kinds of things uh, and 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 have this methodology and. And separate yourself in two. I think that's a really good way to look at it. Um, you know, go over and put some important-looking teacher glasses on and become the structural editor kind of thing when it's time to do that. But definitely get into that creative space and feel good about yeah. doing that. You're probably sitting in the yeah. wrong chair if you're stuck. <laughs> if you're stuck. <laughs> That's
2: oh beautifully. I gotta I gotta write that one down because that's that's a great way to say it. You might be sitting in the wrong chair because I literally th- there's this chair that my wife knows I love. It's this beautiful, comfortable armchair, and I like to sit in that. And I cannot sit at my desk. I mean, I could if I had to, I suppose, but it's just a lot less conducive <laughs> than than this place. I, I I noticed this when I was a kid. I remember that I did some of my best composing when I was a composer. When I was on trains, I should by train a lot, um, just the motion of the train or sitting in the train car being, you know, no distractions because I wasn't at home with my stuff around me. Uh, I did some of my best writing on trains. And then I discovered that I did some of my best writing in coffee shops. And then I discovered that, and, and what what these things all had in common, and then all, the seashore I discovered, what these things all had in common was they all took me out of my normal busy, cluttered, analytical, structured space where all the trappings of me are sitting around, my files and my you know, all my stuff that's it's my stuff. So getting me getting myself out of that structured place. Now I do great work in that structured place, but not this kind of work. Not that spark of yeah. getting in the flow kind of work. So yeah, you're you're so right. Get in the right chair.
0: Uh, we have a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that everybody understands what they need to do after this to have this experience with your latest book, The Recipe. Um, and uh, But I want to go over one more statement that I think we can fit in here that Chef makes. Excellence is not greatness. Greatness is excellence plus honor. What does he mean by that, and and why is excellence not the same as greatness? Yeah, you
2: know... <laughs> It's, um, so when I was a kid, I played in an ensemble and, uh, I remember in, in New York City, I remember one time we had a, we were playing a Brahms F minor piano quintet and we had the string quartet plus piano, had an amazing pianist. And our first violinist was this kid who just come over from Hungary, who was just a, 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 a prodigy, amazing technique. And he would play a passage and it was like, you just listened to a wooden post, Nothing. It was like he could play anything, but it was just notes. It didn't touch you at all. And uh, it's like he was a sweet kid, had a nice heart, but it, just, it didn't reach out to his fingers. He had excellence, technical excellence, but it didn't matter. Um, it, imagine it this way. Imagine you have a business that turns an amazing profit. And in the process, it makes people sick, ruins the environment, and takes advantage of its employees. <laughs> like, so, okay, uh, excellence, I suppose. To me, what, so what the chef is saying is there, is there is technical excellence and that's important, the skills with the knife, with the fire, with the seasonings, with the combining, there's the, the timing. Technical skills, the same thing is true in writing, the same thing is true in business, in sales, in everything. There is the, the vocabulary, Of the discipline and you want to have excellence in that vocabulary but the larger question is who are you doing it for why are you doing it what's what's who are you serving is the way the chef puts it It, it, it's I think it's best summed up for me in this scene that is what the cover of the book is about and the cover of the book uh if you if you ever see the book's cover it's picture of a plate of blueberry pancakes with a single peach rose in a one stem vase. And it's a picture of a scene that Owen, the boy, remembers back when he was eight years old, one day when his dad was still alive. And Owen comes down from his bedroom one morning, a Saturday morning, and finds his dad cooking breakfast. And he's cooking breakfast for Owen's mom, breakfast in bed Saturday morning. He's making his famous oat blueberry pancakes. And Owen asks his dad, What makes your pancakes taste so good? Is it the blueberries? And his father says, no, it's not the blueberries. Is it the maple syrup? Is it the oat flour? He's asking, is it this? Is it that? And his dad's saying, no, 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 no. And finally his dad gets down at Owen's eye level and says, Owen, the secret ingredient isn't anything in the pancakes. The secret ingredient is who you're making them for. That for me is like the the message of the book. It's the, the heart and soul of the book. And I think that's what the what the chef is really saying, that excellence is the sixth of the seven steps of the seven rules. It's important. It's right up there. But excellence
0: by itself doesn't determine greatness
2: because greatness is all about who are you doing it for.
0: Awesome way to round out the day here. Uh, Thank you so much. The book is uh, The Recipe, A Story of Lost Love and the Ingredients of Greatness by John David Mann and Charles M. Carroll. You can pick it up at Amazon. And how do people follow you around the internet? What's your favorite place to engage with folks? I pour everything I've got into my website, which is
2: simply my name, John David Mann with two ns dot com.
0: Awesome. John Mann, this is really <laughs> No pun intended. This has really been awesome. <laughs> I've, I've had a great time today. It was very unexpected. Uh, it was uh, a, kind of a late addition to the show, and uh, I, I just kept reading and reading. I'm like, this guy, wow. You really think, though, take a note on that Afghani Philharmonic thing. I think when you adapt your, your life to the screen that that really has to be in there. You don't have to credit me. That's free. You can have that. Oh,
2: uh, you Executive producer and assistant producer, at least, because there's always room for cello.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on Leverage Masters today. Thanks, Tom. I love being
1: here. Appreciate awesome, it. Awesome, guys. Thank you.
0: Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest. We'll see you next time on Leverage Masters